Hi, this is Paul Gladder with the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm here today with an author, John Ward, who's based in D.C. He writes for uh, Yahoo News. He's the chief national correspondent there. And those who listen to the podcast know we love to talk to journalists and authors um, about their work. And so that's what we're here with John today. He's got a new book out called Testimony. And so, John, we're glad to to have you here and to learn more about your your book. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And so, and by the way, this is literally coming out. It's newly released, so you, people should go. If you like what you're hearing, please go order it um, at all the fine retailers online or in person. And independent bookshops are always good places to shop. Um, John, tell us, you know, what led you to write this book, and you know, who's really the audience for it. As you were working on it, I guess uh, you could say I was led to to write the book just by the gravitational pull of, you know, my life. Um, I grew up uh, in a church setting that I always knew was a little different than the way a lot of other people my age were growing up. Um, I was somewhat secluded from from uh, you know settings outside the church because we kept to ourselves, but. I would get glimpses here and there from playing sports that uh, are, are my experience was was different. So that was probably the beginning of wanting to better understand, you know, where I come from. Um, just this idea of knowing that I was uh, living a, a, a different life and, and wanting to understand why that was and what created it, I think, was the beginning um, I also have a, you know, I don't, I have a mind, a, a mind that often likes to ask the question why. So um, that, you know, in, in religious, in, in conservative religious settings and cultures, those kinds of questions can, can be unwelcome at times. And, um, and I think that created, you know, even more of a sense of, oh, well, if there's, a resistance to these questions. I just want to keep asking them more and more. Um, and then, so for for a long time, I wanted to write about the way I grew up. And then the last, but for a long time, I didn't really have any sense of why it would matter to most people. And then over the last several years, uh, you know, I think most people would be aware that evangelical political involvement has been a big news story and subject of um, a lot of speculation and discussion and debate and curiosity. And so that kind of made it an obvious uh, reason to write the book. And I tried to, to write this book in a way that um, was not too tied to the current moment and to the last few years. Um, but that is an inescapable part of it. Um, and the audience is uh, really twofold. It's the, the world, it's the people from the evangelical world that I grew up in. Um, and for them, I, I think I seek to invite them on a journey of examination of the ways that evangelicalism is a cultural product um, as much as it is a theological or religious um, venture. Um, and I think for, for people outside that world, I, I'm just basically trying to help them understand it better. Um, and there's many reasons for that, but I, I do think that 
when when people who are conservative and religious are kind of cast away from the mainstream conversation, it actually increases the risk of greater degrees of radicalization, political radical, radicalization. Um, so it is something. It, it is a desire of mine to ha to find ways to bring conservative evangelicals to the table where the common good is being discussed. Yeah, well, I'm going to pack a lot of what you said um, on culture and politics as, as we get into the conversation. And um, for listeners wondering, well, what's the book feel like? You know, I want to say that I, I enjoyed, um, it seems sort of like a memoir-like sort of a, a vignettes as yeah. you go along. Um, uh, and so what kind of patchwork will a reader experience just in terms of those, those vignettes and, and the kinds of things they journey through? Yeah. I mean, the early parts of the book, I think give a pretty good flavor of what it's like to be a child in this setting. Um, everything from scenes of, you know, church services with dancers and uh, rock bands and uh, very Pentecostal type um, expressions of religion to the period in my college years when I actually became most religious and most intensely uh, fanatical about it. Um, and I and I take the reader inside the psychology of that and how um, both the the broader cultural culture of evangelicalism and the unique uh, setting of my church shaped mm -hmm. my thinking and my psychology and my emotions and my behavior. Um, and, you know, there are different degrees to which my experience is um, universal. In some ways, it's unique. And in some ways, I think it's pretty common among millions of evangelicals. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, by the way, I, I told John this, that uh, I, maybe the first book that I've started to read that, wow, I'm the, the author is the same age as me, has the same number of siblings, same father uh, occupation and it really feels like an interesting parallel and a trip down memory lane, and maybe other listeners would would find the same thing. One of the one of the differences I think was different geographies and slightly different theological sort of church homes. And one of the, you keep coming back, I think, throughout the book to your home church that you grew up in, and a pastor named I think C.J. Mahaney. And what can you what can you tell us about that um, that church and minister and how and why there's so much kind of a, a through line in the book sure sure yeah i mean there are particular things about uh cj and the church i grew up in that are of interest um but a lot of i think the reason that there is this through line with him throughout the book is because i i use him and another leader from the early days of our church as archetypes who i think uh demonstrate or symbolize two pretty dominant streams inside evangelicalism. Um, and CJ would be more of a um, theology-focused uh, type Christian leader and pastor. Uh, he did uh, become fairly well-known about a decade ago, maybe, you know, starting around the early 2000s, for about a decade, he was part of uh, a group of pastors, Al Mohler, Mark Dever, Lincoln, Ligon Duncan, uh, John Piper was loosely involved in that as well. Um, all of these pretty big names inside evangelicalism, conservative, reformed, Calvinist, uh, evangelical churches. And, um, and so the CJ archetype um, 
is is not very interested in in political engagement um has been pretty influenced by the new calvinism that was uh that was a big deal 20 years ago um and tends to preach very expositional sermons and um there may be charismatic practice in the church in terms of raising hands and some speaking in tongues but that's the extent of it. The Lou Angle archetype, he was another leader in our church early on, and him and another guy named Che Ahn moved to California in the 90s, started their own church, um, and they're now very significant figures in something that scholars call the New Apostolic Reformation, which um, has has was and is really, in some respects, still uh, sort of the, the backbone of Christian Trumpism, um, and this was something that happened over the last, this sort of more political flavor um, happened among these more charismatic leaders over the last 10 to 20 years. I highly recommend a podcast called um, Charismatic Revival Fury uh, that's about eight episodes long. Um, if you just Google that title, Charismatic Revival Fury, it'll pop right up. And it explains that evolution. But these are guys who uh, were, were much more interested in sort of a dynamic, explosive, dramatic faith, um, less interested in theological debates, wanted to have a very expressionist and, and uh, spectacular, I would say, form of, of faith. And there's a lot of emphasis on gifts of the Holy Spirit, a lot of prophecy. Um, and so you, you see some of this kind of going off the rails the last couple of years with people like Lance Wallnau, um, who are, you know, Dutch Sheets would be another one, who are not only marrying their religious convictions with their political views, but are now sort of broadcasting to their many followers that God is giving them direct messages for how Christians should engage politically. So um, would not be what I would call a healthy, uh, you know, model for applying faith to politics. Well, and you're someone who's covered politics there in, in D.C. And, and lived close um, around, you know, the D.C. area. And I'm kind of curious to, to bring up uh, Trump, of course, and uh, which figures into your book some. And it, um, what's the role of Trump to bring the issues you talk about in the book um, more front and center? And do you think they would have come to, to, to emerge the same way they did had, had the country not elected Trump in 2016? That is such an interesting question. I think a lot of the ferment we've seen over the last several years would have been much, uh, much more subdued if Trump was not the nominee. I think if you had nominated Marco Rubio, uh, as the Republican nominee in 2016, or Jeb Bush. Um, you know, Ted Cruz is an interesting sort of in-between model, like much more of a culture warrior, um, but not somebody who I think would ever even dream of trying to do what Trump did in the 2020 election. I think there's actually very few political figures in the world who could attempt to do what Trump did in 2020. Um, and so, yeah, I think if Rubio or Bush had been the nominee, I don't think you would have had as nearly as much of a, of a um, sort of a examination of the foundations of evangelical political engagement. Um, I will say, though, that a lot of my discomfort 
with evangelical political engagement, like I think a lot of people, um, has been simmering for a long time. Um, and I write about the way, you know, John Piper for all for for he's not a perfect person. He's made some very troubling remarks about women um, and their role in the church and even domestic abuse. That said, I mean, I think he's he's also contributed a lot to uh, Christian the Christian faith. He's done more to, to stand up for principle in politics than a lot of Christian leaders. Um, and uh, and he's somebody whose articulation of how Christian faith can be applied to politics um, resonated with me, you know, 15, 20 years ago as, you know, and was in opposition to a lot of what I saw from the Christian right, which tends to be seeking power and domination uh, to protect the interests of their, you know, their group, which to a certain extent, that is the role of politics. I get that. But there was very little um, concern for, I think, um, working towards the good of all groups, uh, working towards a more pluralistic vision of, uh, of American uh, democracy. Um, it just tended to be more seeking domination. And, and Piper's vision of, politi of political involvement uh, was much more, I think, about service and, um, and, and, and seeking to put the common good before one's own selfish interests, I would say. Uh, yeah, and if if you read John's book, um, you'll see references to I think you know writers who've influenced you. I saw Mako Fujimoro's in there quite a bit. Um, you mentioned Francis Fitzgerald's book on evangelicals um, and others along the way. There, I like James D. Hunter for me was was hugely influential. Mm -hmm. I think on on perspective. Curious to hear your take on our brethren in the mainstream media too. Sometimes try to boil down. It's easy to see. Oh, eighty percent of evangelicals or whatever voted for Trump, um, and then to boil down and label people one direction. And for those of us who've kind of lived, I guess, in some generations here who've lived through the 80s, a young <laughs> Trump was a young man then, but we saw Falwell and whatnot and other factors of Christian evangelicals getting into politics. And then I don't know about you, but for me, 2016 felt like a replay. And I'd already done a lot of reading and kind of from the first wave of evangelical engagement in politics. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if you were talking to, and maybe you will with this book, be talking to Gen Y and Gen Z, mm. What's what do you try to explain to them? And I'm talking about like evangelicals or Christians and Gen Y and Gen Z. If you're speaking at summer camps or youth events, what's the most important thing for them to hear from you about politics and culture? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I, one of the things that comes to mind is that um, institutions need you, um, whether that is the Democratic Party or the or the Republican Party, or whether that is efforts to uh, reform um, our election system by getting rid of partisan primaries and uh, and and building a better incentive structure for for politicians. I think institutions need our young people to rediscover the role uh, of, of these institutions and the ways that we have been trained by social media and the internet to think of uh, influence as mediated largely through individuals and brands. 
Um, but there is such a, 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 a um, shortcoming in that model because when you accumulate followers on social media, what can you then do with that influence? Even if you have millions of followers, it is so much less powerful than the power of an institution where multiple people are working together with a common vision and a common mission through something that is larger than themselves um, that can enable them to work together to create and accomplish things that they could never do on their own, even with, I mean, sure, millions of, somebody with millions of followers like um, uh, uh, Kim Kardashian, she has more influence probably than a think tank with, you know, 10 employees. But, but even over the long term, I think institutionalism, that's why my, pod, my, my podcast is called The Long Game. I think institutionalism accomplishes more over the long term because it has a mission, it has stated values. Those things outlast individuals um, and then can be perpetuated over time. So that would be one of the big things. You know, when you roll faith into that equation, you know, I think younger people shouldn't sneer at political parties or joining uh, parties or, or joining groups that are working towards um, political action. But I think seeing, you know, one's faith as a voting block or as a group looking to protect its interests is not the primary uh, goal of religion and politics. The goal of religion and politics, I think, should be to um, to be salt and light, to have a prophetic edge, meaning you tell the truth, um, uh, you know, about uh, reality and about what is what you believe to be right and wrong, and you criticize, you know. You don't become captive to one political party, which I think we've seen uh, with large swaths of the conservative evangelical church and the Republican Party. So um, it's 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 a complicated matrix, I think, to think about political involvement um, as not detached from from religion, but um, you know, operating under a different set of rules than I think religion does in the political sphere. I think you can you can work in the kingdom of man in a certain way, uh, not throwing morality out the window, but recognizing that you're working with others who have different points of view, and the goal is to come to compromise for the good of all. And then when faith comes into the picture, that's really informing, I think, a lot of that, and is not being used um, to sort of carve yourself out from the, from the group and say, I'm going to, you know, work to protect only these people and everybody else can kind of take a walk. Yeah, it's really fascinating, you know, because I think reading the book, I see your elements of diagnosis of the problem of, you know, a few examples, anti-intellectualism you talk about, emotional manipulation, sometimes in parts of the evangelical church or the emphases on politics and culture wars. And and that's that's all fascinating. But But I think the answer you just gave is really interesting as to where do we go from here? And we'll, we'll talk some more about that. But I, I think a lot of listeners might be wondering too, what about you, John, like with institutions and the evangelical church as an institution, do you identify as ex-evangelical now? Or what can you tell us about the status of your own faith and journey? I think when I finished the book, I wasn't quite where I am now on this question, because I think just even recently, I've realized like I'm not, I'm not an evangelical. I actually 
still believe in the core teachings of Christianity, just as I always have. But I, I, I wouldn't um, have the same emphases on, for example, proselytization as, uh, you know, the Babington quadrilateral would, would, would hold that to be one of the four key characteristics of evangelicals. Um, and I think I'm, you know, working through how I think about topics like that. But the biggest distinction between, I think, myself and a lot of evangelicalism is I just don't hold my beliefs with the same sense of certainty um, that I think a lot of evangelicals do. Um, but there would also be differences with stuff like proselytization as well. Um, but I still consider myself a Christian and, um, and my faith and, and the faith is very important to me. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling us about that. And I mean, I'm, I personally see um, a lot of deconstruction or reexamination going on in families, at least in maybe Gen X for sure, and, and Y and Z. And if we look at, I mean, I think it matches with numbers we're seeing from Pew and other places. Um, throughout American Christendom, there's a reexamination going on. And frankly, I've, I've kind of seen, I think, more books from women doing the reexamination, which is important because mm -hmm. the evangelical church has settled and done a lot about women. But I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that in terms of like um, um, your book and its place for men in thinking through this stuff. Or, and, and, it, and I think on, you know, how can should people deconstruct or reexamine? Is there healthy and unhealthy ways? And do men do that differently mm -hmm. than women? Um, I think the, the question, the comment, uh, or the question about men is a, is an interesting one, um, and I and I I care a lot about this idea of masculinity and strength, and I worry about the ways that strength and masculinity have been distorted um, over the last, you know, I think for a long time, but especially so over the last couple of years. Um, one of the core teachings of Christianity is that, you know, um, we find our life by losing it uh, in, in service, um, and that when we acknowledge our weakness, we are made stronger, um, and that, you know, those who are the greatest will be the servant. Um, all of those statements really run in the face of the dominant understandings of strength and masculinity that are on the right in a lot of religious culture as well. Um, and so I do think that my story, my background, um, you know, offers some uh, pushback to that. You know, I'm the son of a, or I'm the grandson of a All-American football player who taught me and my brothers um, a lot about toughness and uh you know what it means to pursue excellence um he was uh you know we literally called our grandfather hard guy like he and we kind of laughed about it at the time i thought it was silly um but now it's a term of endearment he passed on almost 20 years ago um and uh you know we were not i am a bit of a nerd when it comes to you know i, I love to read i'm a bit of an introvert um, but I also did nothing but play sports growing up and had my grandfather as this model. So it's not as if I was, um, you know, sitting in my room growing up, just reading books. I was mostly out playing sports, um, and, uh, you know, played a couple of years of football, 
um, took great pride in hitting harder than anybody else, you know? So those are kind of silly things to some people, but I think to, to some men, like, and my, my son is 15 now he's wrestling, um, talk about a tribe of incredibly tough people, self-reliant. I, I don't know if I've ever encountered, a, a culture like wrestling culture. My, my uncle was a national champ at Iowa state. I never wrestled, but I am just blown away at the, um, how impressive, uh, wrestlers are. Uh, and yeah. I am blown away at what my son does. Uh, day in and day out. So this is not a story about, you know, embracing weakness from from somebody who um, doesn't know anything about, you know, some of the more masculine seeming aspects of culture. But, you know, I think the fact that we can't even really discuss the notion that um, men and women both have masculinity and femininity inside them is a marker of how, uh, you know, oversimplified our conversations are about these topics yeah no and thanks for the shout out on wrestling i again my i have an uncle who is a national champion d2 my dad was a wrestler i love wrestling ncaa's are fantastic to follow and um and, and you know just to follow on that with a question i um you know it's amazing it's kind of uncanny how i, I agree with so much of what you're saying and have a similar similar views on a lot of things and i i have found found a couple of times i'm in a room with people who might label themselves Christian nationalists at some kind of event, right? And I always try to listen and talk and find out what, where they're coming from. Personally, I'm, I'm a never Trumper, I'm a registered independent. So I really want to understand it. And I think what I hear from those kind of people, and maybe you do too, it's men for those kind of men, uh, is that they just think the other side is fighting, like, you know, with brass knuckles. And so if, mm, if people right. follow your ideas or my ideas or whatever that that you know or they'll criticize someone like david french as being too soft and that's just not you know that masculine muscular enough to compete in the public square today because there's an other op uh, opposing ideologies what, what what do you what do you say to people like that or what would you ask people like that um or when you find people like that in, in your reporting just kind of curious of your observations of, of them the better question that I should answer is what would you ask someone like that? Yeah. Um, because that's always the best way to engage, right. With questions rather than arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think if I were to ask those questions, it would focus on two in, in two directions. One would be in the direction of asking them, you know, where they are, you know, for examples of what they think are, are, um, the other side fighting with brass knuckles. And, and that can always, you know, that can always be a mix of things grounded in reality that have then been spun into exaggerations often by cable news or um, folks on, you know, online who are often building media empires by raising money through scaring their supporters. Um, and And then I would, you know, if if that's kind of one category of conversation, you know, the reality of the threat, I think the other area of conversation is the proper response to a threat. And um, again, politics is a venue for advocating for your point of view and your interests. Um, but, you know, I, 
if you call yourself a Christian and adhere to Christian principles, the idea that, you know, the teachings of Christ go out the window when you enter the political arena is, um, I, I don't see any justification for it. Um, and, and so I think it really just requires a more robust study of, uh, and conversation and debate about how we apply those teachings of Christ, uh, to politics, because I don't think they've been robustly applied. Um, and, um, the way I think we often bypass them is through sort of a oversimplified conversation. But, you know, if we're going to have those conversations with people who think differently, it takes time and patience and forbearance and humility. And it's not easy. And that's why it doesn't happen very often. Got time for three or four more quick questions. One, uh, I noticed, I'm curious how this stuff plays out in families. And you have six siblings, I think, same as me. And I'm kind of, and your father was a pastor. And I'm just, I noticed at the end of your book, you, 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 um, you have a little note to your mom and your dad. I'm just kind of curious what you can tell us of how these conversations in this project has played out and um, with your family. Uh, is it, has it been positive or is it difficult, difficult conversations and thought processes? I think, you know, some of that is still to come. Um, but with my parents, it's actually been surprisingly positive um, process. My father in particular has not agreed. He disagrees with a lot of, of what I've written. Uh, but we've had face-to-face -face and phone conversations that have brought a lot of healing to our relationship. And um, I would say before those conversations, there was just a lot of uh, distance between us, I would say, um, built on year, a couple, several years now of disagreement and misunderstanding. And my father is not a hot-tempered guy, um, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely felt like um, I was upset with him. I felt hurt. Um, and, and, you know, I think it just speaks so well of him that he um, has had the, I don't, the character, the, um, the bigness to, to hear me, even as he disagrees with some of what I'm saying, and to really affirm um, my my relationship to him as his son, um, even though we disagree on things, that was kind of what I wanted. I wanted to say, look, I don't really care if we disagree on some of these things. I just want to have a relationship with you as father and son. I want you to take an interest in in my career and my life and, and cheer me on. And he's really heard me on that. Um, and and I'm I'm going to be forever grateful to him for that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think you read when you read the book, you get uh, a lot of examples. Uh, a reader will get a lot of examples on how to have conversation with your family, how to think, and because, and I think there is this issue of estrangement. I've seen articles about, like, I think Gen Y and Z, perhaps, and some X are more uh, uh, more inclined to just kind of cut off contact with people who aren't healthy in your life or something, mm. including your parents, your siblings, or whatever. Whereas yeah. maybe maybe Gen X, our tendency was to let things roll off. We we're the slackers, so we just kind of, you know, ignored things. But it's interesting to, I think, to to wrestle with uh, how does one have conversations? How do with how do you create uh, boundaries, but also 
conversation. And it seems like to me, this book is an example of doing that. Well, I certainly tried, but I think if I did it over again, I might've had fewer of those conversations over email or in person. Um, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it didn't seem to have much effect. And um, yeah, I'm not having a lot of political conversations with my dad these days, uh, certainly not with my siblings. Um, I think it's a work in progress for all of us to try to figure out how to do that. Um, we, I think we've had a, a break from the need to do that because of the fact that our president is, um, you know, whether you agree or disagree with his policies, he's not waking up every day trying to create controversy and divide the country as President Trump. Clearly, that was his strategy. Uh, yeah. That was his political strategy. Yeah. So I think we've had a break from it. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if Trump is the nominee again, I think it'll be a real test for a lot of this. Yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, I, I think this is playing out in lots of families and lots of churches. I just, um, uh, just saw Bob Smitana last couple of days and he has a book out basically looking at the decline of the church. And so it's kind of, you know, corollary or a little bit in the same category here but on a very different uh, thesis around um, uh, will we see, will the numbers continue and does it look like we'll see continued closure of churches, including evangelical churches, if if the attendance, um, there, there's several metrics that Bob, Bob was sharing. And if we do see that, is it a good thing or a concerning thing um, for, for Christianity and, and evangelical Christians to, to be a minority? Oh, well, I definitely, I mean, I guess they're already a minority, but to be, I guess, more of a minority. There, there's different ways to look at that question. Is it a good thing or a bad thing if Christians are minority? I, you know, I think, I think Christians, when they live out their, their faith with integrity, have a wonderful impact on society for good. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, that's not been the case often over the last several years. It's never, it's never perfect, but I think it's been particularly um, uh, negative over the past several years. Um, uh, you know, if and it's possible that becoming a minority um, helps Christians rediscover, um, you know, a more faithful witness. Um, and I think certainly for, you know, the integrity of the faith or the existence of the faith or however you want to phrase it um the numbers to me are not um the number certainly the number of people who claim to be christians has never been something that i've put much stock in um yeah you know more than ever now what matters to me is whether people um, live their lives according to the the basic teachings that that Christ gave us. Um, yeah. Well, I got to your follow yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, to follow up to that, you know, the uh, Ryan Burge who writes for our site and others, so he, you know, he tweets out great data all the time, and I think he, he's kind of shown that it's actually the a lot of the Trump sort of evangelical supporters don't go to church weekly, right? So that there, there are a lot of um, 
people who might willingly accept the label Christian nationalists may not actually be practicing Christianity, but rather part of late stage hegemonic majority faith or something in this country. I like the question you ask, and you're starting to get it, I think getting into it with your last answer there, but in the, in the conclusion, you asked this question, which um, that gets at what's the way forward for Christians in America. You ask, what would a more Christian witness look like? So what else do you suggest it does look like? One of the things that I, I have started to talk about more often is that I was I was raised pretty effectively to, to be a good person in private. Um, and I call this private character. Uh, that just means that a lot of churches do a pretty good job, I think, of teaching people how to be a good son or a daughter, a good husband or wife. There's a lot of teaching and preaching about um, being a being a good Christian in these more private settings could extend to the workplace, stuff like that, you know, private character. Um, and what I was never really equipped to do was to think about and act on this idea of public character, how to be a good member of society, a good citizen, a good political actor. Um, this is a, a category of thought that really is missing from evangelical, uh, the evangelical mind in the evangelical culture, um, it's, it's, a, it's a strength of the black Christian church in America, um, which has you know a, a pretty long track record of not only having to rely on its faith through times of actual oppression, um, but has out of that you know uh, possessed and passed on um, a real concern for applying the faith to the, the community at large to social justice issues. And, um, and I think, you know, evangelicals individualism feeds into this. There's not a lot of um, thought to how sin and redemption can be uh, com community wide or, uh, or systemic. And so um, those, those would be, you know, some of the building blocks, I think of creating a more Christian witness, um, both intellectually and culturally. Um, and then I think the other big, big one for me is just this idea of service uh, rather than domination. Um, you know, what does it mean to live out the, the command to express sacrificial love uh, politically uh, for the common good, I think, are, are the kind of questions that um, that Christians could ask more. Excellent. Well, I feel like we keep talking for hours on this, but I know you probably got to get back to work too. And I, I uh, want to thank you for giving us a, a sampling of your thoughts and some background of what processes and thoughts went and research went into this book. And I, and again, I hope that uh, some of our listeners will read the excerpt on our website from John Ward's book, Testimony, and please do go order it. I think you'll get uh, a lot more from the book itself. Um, and, uh, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed uh, talking with you today, John. So thanks for being here on our on our Religion Unplugged podcast. Thank you, Paul. I especially enjoyed the part about masculinity and strength. And uh, I hope that we all continue to have that conversation because it's really important. But thank you for the whole thing. I appreciate it. Absolutely.